let the Holy Spirit uh, provide here, right? I want to read this passage from Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 13, it's a parable of the sower. We've heard this many times, haven't we? So that same day, it's chapter 13, verse 1 and following. It says, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. Great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat there. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. The birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they had not much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell on thorns. And the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. And this passage is really, isn't that about the church? The church helps interpret things, the scriptures and all of that. For to him who has more will be more will be given, and he will have abundance. But for him who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's what happened to that guy in judgment. I've gave you so many things and you just used them for yourself, right? You're damned. And then there was Mary. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. We need the church to help us understand these things. With them indeed is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, You shall indeed hear, but never understand. You shall indeed see, but never perceive. And he's talking about the Pharisees and the leaders, that here is God incarnate in the midst of them, and they just blew it. For this people's heart has grown dull. Their ears are heavy with hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should perceive with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn to me to heal them. For blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see, and did not see it, and hear what you hear, and did not hear it. All the prophets in the Old Testament, they would have loved to receive Holy Communion just once. Hear the parable of the sower. When one hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what is sown in his heart. This is what is sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is he who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the delight in riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is he who hears the word and understands it. 
he indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. It's the noise of the world that causes circumstances leading to the seeds of faith on the path of life to be snatched away by the evil one and demons. It's the noise of the world that causes conditions where a person may not have root in their soil for the seeds of faith to germinate. It's the noise of the world that leads us to be distracted, bothered, obsessed with anxiety. It's the noise of the world that causes us to be afraid of being persecuted. Now, we've entered unchartered territory in our country, and and most Christians, most Catholics, they're asleep. They're asleep at the wheel. They have no idea. See, as long as it doesn't just bother me personally, you know, my iPhone, my iPad, my i this, i that, my vacations, my pleasures, my this, my that... I'm not really concerned about what's, you know, it's, just, it's not really affecting me personally. So what in the world am I talking about? You're probably wondering, what in the world am I, where, what, where am I going here? I bet some of you are aware of what's going on. Uh, we Christians are being labeled homophobes, bigots. You know, when it comes to same-sex attraction, I'm the courage chaplain. It's not genetic. People are not born that way. There's a wound that's present. It could extend from the very early in life. Because when that wound is treated, sexual orientation can revert back to heterosexuality. And yet, when we stand for traditional marriage, we're bigots. And then this transgendered uh, ideology. You know, there was a study from Scandinavia, the most accepting of transgenderism and homosexuality on the planet. And despite the hormonal therapy and the mutilating surgery, suicide attempts, suicide ideation, suicide, mental disease, substance abuse are all unchanged. It's a mental disease. God created us male and female. From creation we're created. So here we are, if we, if we disagree in any, any manner, we're bigots. And, for example, I'm sure you're aware of this case. I think it's in Oregon, Sweet Cakes by Melissa. You heard of that? It actually is a Protestant couple, very conservative Protestant couple, and they sold, they had clients that were homosexuals. They had gay clients. They sold them cakes, pies, cookies, donuts, even donuts with sprinkles. Oh, yes, yes, even with sprinkles. Oh, yeah, I know, it's hard to believe. And I don't know about clotches, though. They probably drew the line there, I don't know. But. And so they had gay clients, and so two women that were their clients, and they thought that they were friends with these two women as much as you can be friends with clients, customers. They had sold things to these two women. And then one day the two women came in and said, we'd like a wedding cake. 
And this couple said, well, that's the one thing we can't do. So what do these two women do? Suit them. No, see, we're going to force you to make that cake. And Oregon is, it's in the Northwest, Washington, Oregon. Very, very liberal. And the judgment went against this couple, and they said, you owe this couple, these two women, $135,000. And we're not going to pay it. So they're going to take their house away. And their business is gone. I just testified uh, in the HHS subcommittee at the legislature. Uh, Patty Panzing Brooks introduced a bill whereas uh, mental health professionals would have to provide marital counseling to two men or two women or make a direct referral. Well, our counselors can't do that. And we're labeled homophobes. So those many proponents that testified, and it's just so shameful. They had a couple young men and one woman. They had this, in, in, in the same testimony, this one young man, this poor young man said, I'm gay, and I had was suicidal, and I can't imagine going to a counselor and say, well, I'm not going to treat you because you're gay. We need this bill. And on and on and on and on and on. And so then it was my turn, and I was one of the three opponents. And I said, we treat gay people in our clinic. We don't discriminate unjustly. And I had to describe what unjust and just discrimination is. And the Catechism of the Catholic Church said there's no unjust discrimination against anybody. So, for example, if you had a gas station, you wouldn't hire a pyromaniac to be in charge of your security, would you? If you had a quick shop, you wouldn't hire somebody that had multiple theft convictions, uh, convictions to run your cash register at night, would you? Or even during the day, would you? So this bakery, it would have been unjust for them to Say, well, I'm not going to sell a donut to you because you're gay. But it's just discrimination. Well, I can't do a wedding cake. And so I'm explaining all this, and I said, we we, we treat gay people in our clinic. And people that are opponents, they lie, and they a lot of intellectual dishonesty. They say, well, they won't treat gay patients, and they won't refer. And I said, if somebody has suicide ideation, we're going to treat that. But if, if they ask for marital counseling, we can't make a direct referral for somebody. We can say, well, here's all the, as far as we can go, is here's a list of all the mental health practitioners in Nebraska. But we can't make a direct referral. This person will give you what you want. That's, somebody comes to me for an abortion, well, I can't do that. Well, I'll refer here. Dr. Kildare, he'll do your abortion, and here's a 20% off coupon. We can't make direct referrals for something that's evil. And um, and I said, this isn't going to end here. It's going to leach into medicine. Whereas a gay man will go to their doctor and the 
A doctor will treat the gay man for their heart attack, their stroke, their diabetes, their cancer, their sarcoidosis, their amyloidosis, or brucellosis. I said, all the osises. You have to have a little levity, you know. I said, all the osises. We're going to do it all. But not write the script for Viagra. But what's going to happen is, if that Christian physician doesn't write that script for Viagra, they'll take his medical license or her medical license away. And Christians are asleep. They have no, well, we don't want to discriminate. They just don't understand there's just and unjust discrimination that their children and grandchildren will will not be able to go into certain professions. And I could go on and on and on and on and on and on and on about this. And there are a lot of Catholics that are on the legislature that are against us. Creighton University, the part of ethics, who are our number one enemy. See, this has been tried to get through through regulations for the last 10 years. But because we have a Republican governor, they're just waiting for a Democratic governor to get in there. And then they'll change the regulations. St. John Paul II said that we're in the end times. Did you know that? He said something that was quoted in the Magnificat. Now, the end times could last another 200 years. I personally don't think the world's going to end tomorrow. But the last visionary of Fatima said the final struggle will be over the definition of the family. We're right there. And what's worse is the definition of a person. So it's the noise of the world that leads to fear of being persecuted. I'll lose my job, I'll lose my profession, and so then I'll cave and I'll... So this noise of the world leads to this fear of being, well, I'll give up my faith to save my job or whatever. It's fear of the world, or it's a noise of the world that leads to the attachment of the things of the world. Noise of the world. Only a soul that finds God in silence is able to hear the voice of God and respond in faith. Now, lay people, I've been talking about silence. You cannot and should not spend the time in silence that the Carmelite sister, or even sisters in the active life who spend a lot of quiet time during their day, or monks, if you've ever read the book, and it's a great book, it's by Francis de Sales, St. Francis de Sales, it's Introduction to the Devout Life. He talks about how people in various stations of life should conduct themselves. But people like yourselves, or lay people, and in the world, are not called to spend the amount of quiet time in their day that I am. But that doesn't mean that there shouldn't be any quiet time. But there are pitfalls and challenges on the way, like experiencing desolation and dryness. Father Benedict Herschel alluded to and talked about the periods of dryness, the desolation that St. Teresa of Lisieux experienced. St. Mother Teresa, I've never, of all the saints that I've read, never have read the anyone who has experienced desolation to the extent that she experienced the last 50 years of her life 
complete darkness, except one little patch of consolations in between. And she said she felt dead inside. Now, this desolation can come from three causes. It could be a psychological problem that we have, or it could be something that God allows for our good, or it could be from the evil one. It could be demonic. And so silence is key to discerning, helping us discern correctly. So what are the differences? Well, the noise of the world leads to unordinate attachments to things of the world that then when we are praying, there's pain because, see, we're attached to something else. We can't serve both God and mammon. So we're going to be very painful when we pray because, see, we're, we're attached to something else. Somebody that's married and they're having an affair, they're attached to somebody else. It's painful to be with your spouse. When God allows it, God takes consolations from prayer away. Why does he do that? To mature our faith. When someone's a beginner in the faith, they feel all these consolations and bliss and, and warm fuzzies and it feels wonderful and it's great and I love it when I'm in front of the Blessed Sacrament and, and I feel so uplifted and I feel, he's really in, in the boat. And once he has you, he takes all that away. Why? Because he doesn't want people in here because it feels good. It's like a drug. Yeah, give me another hit. He wants us praying because we love him. If prayer felt good all the time, people would pray all the time. Why? Because it feels good. It's like a drug. Father Postoli, I heard him say when he gave a day of recollection to us priests on um, Monday of Holy Week, he said this, and it's really true. When we run away from the Lord, God pursues us. You know, the shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes for the one, and then he puts it on his shoulder and he caresses it and he brings it back to the flock. He doesn't beat it with a stick and say, you dirty rat, I mean lamb. Get back there and he kicks it back in the line. Don't ever run away again. He consoles us and he loves us and he caresses us. He's gentle with us. us. And so we feel these, these warm fuzzies. And then when we start turning to God and start pursuing God, he runs away from us. Because he doesn't want us praying because it feels good. He wants us to pray because we love him. My cousin, Sister Reginalda, she had this little sign in her. She used to be principal at St. Teresa's years ago in the day in the 80s. She had this little sign in front of the chapel that said something like, I'm paraphrasing, when you come in here for prayer, you're reporting for duty. You know, you just... St. Therese used to shake the hourglass reportedly because it's so dry in time in front of the Blessed Sacrament. And then, of course, demonic causes. Uh, the devil doesn't want us doing anything good, so he's going to mess us up no matter what turn we take. And he also can dis disguise himself as an angel of light, always for an evil end. But silence is a key in discerning correctly, and spiritual direction is important too. One of my favorite saints is the big Teresa. 
not that I don't like or love the little Teresa. I love little Teresa Lasso, but Teresa Avila, she had this vision of seven mansions of the soul. And the first mansion is somebody going in and out of mortal sin, in and out of mortal sin. And when somebody can get past that first and second mansion, they make great progress towards the seventh mansions. But we're all called to the seventh mansion, but very few enter it in this life. The seventh mansion is, get this, complete union with God in this world. And the reason few people get to that seventh mansion, which is union with God in this world, is because we have union with things in the world. We have to become detached from things of the world and attached to God. That's the name of the game. Whether you talk about Jesuit, spirituality, Dominican, Franciscan, Carmelite, I drive a Buick or Oldsmobile or Chevy or, you know what, it has a transmission, an engine, and four wheels and a steering wheel. They're all the same. It's all becoming detached from the world and attached to God. Now, that does not mean that we hate the world. So, for example, don't laugh at Father. See, you're already laughing. Thanks a lot. I ask you to do me a favor, and you, and, and you don't. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a motorcycle. There's nothing intrinsically evil, but I really, I used to, I know, I, I know this makes sense, but, and I kind of look like a tough biker guy, but I used to have a motorcycle when I was younger. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're laughing again. And so I really was attached to having a motorcycle. And I have a long way to go, folks, but I don't desire one anymore. I've made a little bit of progress. I don't really care anymore. But some guy came to the office, Hey, Father, I bought this motorcycle. You want to take it a spin around the block? It's been so many years that I drove a motorcycle. The gears are in the, 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 the clutch and the gears with the foot and all that. I, I don't know if I can remember it, but you know, I got on that bike, I got on that bike and it all came back to me. I drove that motorcycle around the block and I enjoyed it. But I don't desire it. You see, you can enjoy a piece of apple pie and not desire it. There's a difference. So becoming detached means becoming, you just, it's not that you don't enjoy the world. We are to enjoy the world. We're put here. We're, all of you are, are supposed to enjoy your family and the things you have. St. Louis of France was a wealthy man, but he was a saint because he wasn't attached to all the wealth that he had, and he was generous with it. God is not calling all of you to give everything away and follow him. He's calling you to generosity. Remember the rich man in chapter 19, Matthew's Gospel? Jesus says, um, give everything away and follow me. And this rich man was more attached to his riches than, than God, and he walked away sad. And that's when Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to be saved. Easier for a camel to go to the eye of a needle than having a rich man to be saved. I mean, that's a stunning statement. Then he meets Zacchaeus, this wealthy tax collector who is short in stature. And he can't see Jesus because he's a short guy. So he runs ahead, climbs a sycamore tree to see Jesus. 
So what does Jesus do? He says, hey, Zacchaeus, how you doing? I'm doing good. Come on down. I'm going to stay at your house today. Did Jesus ask him to give all his money away and follow him? No, he didn't. He left him in his rich state. I like people that have money. They help CSS. I like that. He leaves him in his rich state. And what does Zacchaeus say? I'm going to give half of what I make away. Just think if Bill Gates, he gives uh, money away to develop drugs that cause abortions. Planned Parenthood. But somebody like that, if they gave half of what he made away, he'd still be wealthy, wouldn't he? Zacchaeus says, I give half of what I make away, and then if I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay fourfold. Jesus did not give, ask Zacchaeus to give his money away. Money's not a problem. Money's not an evil. St. Paul didn't say money's the root of all evil, did he? He did not say that. He said the love of money is the root of all evil. He could have said the love of the world, the noise of the world. So the seven mansions being detached of the world and being attached to God. That's what heaven's going to be, right? Daily science, silence is a proper environment that allows a soul to have good soil. So the seeds of faith will bring forth a harvest of 160 and 30-fold. Cardinal Sara says that silence strips a person and makes him like a child, pure but frail, innocent and without provision. Silence shapes us as a blacksmith shapes metal. In addition, silence, he says, this is great, runs alongside hope, which lifts us up. Hope is an ignored theological virtue, and people don't even know what it is. You know, I, uh, I hope it doesn't uh, snow today. That's not hope. Hope is infused by the Holy Spirit in our soul. And this is the definition of hope. Hope is when we look forward to something we know that exists in faith. Hope is looking forward to something we know that exists in faith. You know what we know exists in faith? Faith is a way of seeing. It's a way of knowing. Faith is when the Holy Spirit puts knowledge inside your brain and you know something. I know there's a heaven. And I look forward to it. And the moral virtue of fortitude, fortitude is also a gift of the Holy Spirit, appears and takes the offensive. Courage, fortitude. Silence is a necessary medicine which can be painful but effective. Silence can be painful when somebody's not used to it. The very first retreat I gave here, I love telling this story. The retreat hasn't even started yet. I'm sitting in my room where a lot of you came to talk. And I'm just sitting there, minding my own business, minding my own beeswax. And this guy comes in, oh, probably 40, upset. Disturbed, angry. He says, what's this silent stuff? I didn't sign up for this. I, this is awful. I, I, I can't be silent all weekend. I said, now listen. No one's 
pointing a gun at you and forcing you to be here. Let's just try it out. You can leave any time. The doors, even though we lock at 10 o'clock, you just push. The, you, you can go. Oh, all right. Well, Sunday at lunch, where you can talk at lunch, he said, Father, it's the best weekend of my life. It can be painful, but it's effective. And he goes on to say, this is very interesting, silence is the prerequisite of love. This is what leads us to divine mercy. When a soul experiences divine mercy, it in turn will be merciful. Here's three of the most hardest things to do. Number one, forgive. Hard to forgive. In fact, when somebody does something really mean, it's hard to forgive. I know a woman. I've known her all my life. I knew the family all my life. And in holidays, I'd go home and oftentimes I'd see this woman. She's about my age. And I'd just show up because I have mass obligations during the day and I'd show up and she'd say, well, I, I have to go home. And she's single. She was single. Well, I have to go home. What do you, what, what do, you have to do? I got to do laundry. Laundry was always her excuse. And I'm thinking, she must have a lot of laundry. She would go home to drink. They get drunk. So, since I knew the family very well and I know her all my life, at age 50 she got married for the first time and she married a guy that her, his wife died. All of his kids were grown up. And I said to myself, uh, uh, since I've known her so well, I won't have a tear when she walks down the aisle. Her dad walked and had a little tear here, so she gets married. But not long after she got married, things almost blew up, and I knew nothing of her drinking. And I get a phone call asking if I would be part of an intervention. And I said, sure. So I come, and I go to her house. And she was so angry I was there, and she was a mess. And she was drunk, and her place of business was so patient with her. So I set up a place where she could go and get treatment. And during the time that she was there, she later told me she did something she hadn't done in years. She got a rosary out and said it. And she said the rosary the next day. And the next day. And then that led her to read the scriptures. So she had an inner transformation, went to confession and all that. Then when she came out, I was asked to be there. And when I saw her, I didn't recognize her. I mean, yes, I recognize her, but you know what I mean. Her face was completely different. She had the light of Christ in her eyes, which led to her getting her husband up in the morning at 4.30 for an hour of prayer, rosary, 
silence, led a daily mass, completely different woman. You know why she was drinking? You know why she was drinking? She was raped twice by two different men. She was drinking to medicate that wound. Don't we all have this ache inside? You know what I'm talking about. Even in a really good marriage that doesn't adequately medicate this ache we all have. People try to medicate it with substance abuse, sexual things, hunting, fishing, anything. But God made us for him, and the only thing that can satisfy this ache is God. So when we experience desolation, it's because God wants us to grow closer. He's trying to mature our faith. Sometimes, and I have a long way to go, folks. I, I want to be a saint, but I heard ben, Father Benedict Gershel say one time, I'm not a saint. I think he was. I'm not anywhere near he. But I, when, when I say these things, I have a long way to go. But sometimes I'll be sitting in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and I'm dying inside. And have this pain. And it's all right here, isn't it? And I just look at the tabernacle. And I say to myself, Lord, the only thing that can satisfy this ache is you. And it's in that tabernacle. And I just sit there. But see, when you know this is coming from God is because after that hour, you're strengthened. Mother Teresa, you would never know she had 50 years of darkness. See, that's the difference. And there's a cardinal rule in the spiritual life. When you experience desolation and darkness, you make no changes. Because, see, what the devil wants us to do is, well, see, I'm going to stop praying because, see, I don't get anything from praying anymore. Have you ever heard that? I don't get anything from the rosary. I don't get anything from this. I don't get anything from that, so then I'm going to stop my holy hours because I don't get anything from them. But when you persevere in this dryness and desolation, your soul grows. And intellectually, even though we know it's, we're, we're in darkness, we know we're growing. We know God is there. And I love to tell people, when God seems the furthest away, he's the closest. That's Jesus when he's hanging on the cross. And he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt abandoned. He knew he was going to rise from the dead in three days, for heaven's sakes. But he felt abandoned. So in those times of desolation, think of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? So, three of the very hardest things in the, in the world to do is to forgive. And so this woman, she forgave a rapist. Now that piano's off her back. And she did it only with God's help, God's grace. And now her soul is soaring. You know what else is hard to do? Making lifestyle changes to improve bodily health. Diet, exercise, that's really hard. And another really hard thing to do is getting up early in the morning. Now maybe some of you, as I get older, it's harder. I get up about 5.30 and pray, but wow. 
Every morning I'm rudely awakened by my alarm. And then the and then I have a battle every morning. Choosing a little extra sleep over So I'm fighting myself. Oh, 10, 15 minutes more sleep. But the end result is I don't sleep for those 10, 15 minutes because I'm fighting. It's a big waste of time. But if you can get up a little earlier, you can mine a little bit of quiet time. When the when we make lifestyle changes, improve our body, diet, exercise, our body feels better, doesn't it? And when a soul forgives, it feels better too. Like this woman, she's freed of this unforgiveness. That's why this unbound ministry is so important because it, we become unbound from this lead weight of Unforgiveness. So it's my prayer that all of us here make time every day, even if it's just a few moments, for silence. That's where we encounter divine mercy himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Amen.